0: Hey there, Hit Parade listeners. What you're about to hear is part one of this episode. Part two will arrive in your podcast feed at the end of the month. Would you like to hear this episode all at once? Sign up for Slate Plus. It supports not only this show, but all of Slate's journalism and podcasts. Just go to slate.com slash hitparadeplus. You'll get to hear every Hit Parade episode in full the day it arrives, plus Hit Parade The Bridge, our bonus episodes with guest interviews, deeper dives on our episode topics, and pop chart trivia. Once again, to join, that's Slate.com slash Hit Parade Plus. Thanks. And now, please enjoy part one of this Hit Parade episode.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Here we go, fellas. Let's go to work. This is a one, two, a one, two, three.
0: Welcome to Hit Parade. A podcast of pop chart history from Slate Magazine, about the hits from coast to coast. I'm Chris Melanthe, chart analyst, pop critic, and writer of Slate's Why Is This Song Number One series. On today's show, here's a bit of chart trivia to kick off this episode. Thirty-five years ago, in 1986, the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame inducted its first class of legendary performers, ten in all each one essential to the creation of rock and roll. I'm quite confident you know them all, from Chuck Berry, Go, 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 Johnny, go, 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 Johnny, go, go, to Jerry Lee Lewis, You broke my To, of course, Elvis Presley.
1: You ain't
0: I'm not going to ask you to name all ten of them. I'll reveal them all momentarily. Instead, here's my question. Out of this first wave of legends, who is the only one to launch his career with a number one hit that he wrote by himself?
1: If you can't come around At least please tell the phone
0: Don't be cruel true Immediately that eliminates Elvis. He never wrote a chart topper by himself. In fact, he often got co-writing credit for songs he didn't write at all. Jerry Lee Lewis never hit number 1. Great Balls of Fire peaked at number 2. And Chuck Berry wouldn't have a number 1 until the 70s. What about Buddy Holly?
1: Will I the day when you say goodbye? Yeah, yeah, yeah.
0: Holly did write the bulk of his material, and the first hit for his band, The Crickets, was indeed a number one. But Holly co-wrote That'll Be The Day with Crickets drummer Jerry Allison. Ray Charles, too, wrote much of his own material. But he had several top ten R&B hits before his first number one, and that oh, immortal yeah. R&B chart topper,
1: yeah. "I've
0: Got a Woman," was co-written with Charles's trumpet player, Renald Richard. The Everly Brothers scored several chart-toppers in their career, but they kicked off with a number two hit, Bye Bye Love, and a number one, Wake Up Little Susie, up, little Susie wake up. Wake up. both of which were written by husband and wife songwriters Felice and Boudleaux Bryant. Little Richard led off his chart career with the classic "Tutti Fruity, a number two R&B, number seventeen pop hit that was made just a little less lewd by his co-writer Dorothy Laboster. Oh oh, Fats Domino broke on the charts with his number ten pop, number one R&B classic, "Ain't That a Shame." Which, like many of his hits, Fats co-wrote with fellow New Orleans songwriter Dave Bartholomew. Finally, Godfather of Soul James Brown never had a number one pop hit, and among Soul Brother number ones, many R&B hits. It took until James' second single, "Try Me." ...to top the R&B chart. I've named nine of the ten founding Rock Hall inductees. That leaves one who wrote his first hit by himself... ...and instantly took it to number one on the pop and R&B charts. Not even Elvis Presley or Chuck Berry did that... And then he went on to basically invent soul music. That would be Sam Cooke.
1: Darling, you send me. I know you.
0: You Send Me, however simple it might sound now, was, in a way, the most accomplished debut single of rock's first decade. Sam Cooke achieved something historic for any act, let alone a black artist. Two years before Motown had its first hit and before Ray Charles had his first major pop hit, Cook was a self-powered crossover star, and he made it all look and sound so smooth.
1: At first I thought it was infatuation, but ooh, it's lasted so long.
0: Even more remarkable, Cook became a secular music star after he'd already been, arguably, the biggest star in gospel music, singing with the genre's top vocal combo.
1: Oh, was a woman in the Bible days. she had been sick, sick so very long.
0: And when he left gospel, breaking the hearts of many in the worship community. Cook pivoted to pop like it was his
1: birthright. Just call my name, I'm not ashamed I'll come running back to you
0: hmm. By the start of the 1960s, Cook was recording for the biggest label in popular music.
1: Cupid, draw back your bow
0: Soon after that, he would launch a label of his own. All of this success and influence made Cook a key figure in the American civil rights movement, as he played to integrated audiences and fostered Black talent. The depth of Cook's social commitment is an especially hot topic right now, as the film One Night in Miami nominated for several Oscars, finds Cook discussing and debating with some famous friends of his about his role in the struggle. You know I know what's going on out there, right? Listen, listen. In the film, Cook is challenged to go further and deeper with his music. But in real life, Cook had already produced an anthem that would become his legacy not long after his tragic death.
1: It's been a long, a long time coming But I know a change going come Oh, yes it will
0: Today on Hit Parade, we will go deeper than one night into the history of Sam Cooke. He achieved so much in his too brief life, soul pioneer, record mogul, social activist, and one of the greatest voices ever to step in front of a microphone. And did I mention, the man had hits, so many hits. We'll play the big ones, and even the not-so-big ones, because they're pretty much all great.
1: Baby's coming home tomorrow Ain't that news? Man, ain't that news?
0: And that's where your hit parade marches today, the week ending February 29th, 1964, when Sam Cooke's Ain't That Good News was number 13 on Billboard's Hot 100 and number 2 on the Cashbox R&B chart. It's not one of Cooke's best-remembered hits, but it was the one on the charts that fateful week in 64. When Cook really did spend one night in Miami hanging out with three other celebrated black icons. And Good News was emblematic of Cook's singular career, an adaptation of a gospel song and the title track of the last studio album of his lifetime. and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City Branch, subject to credit approval. Terms apply.
1: Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm gonna make him an offer he can't refuse. With family
0: If you haven't seen One Night in Miami yet, and I do recommend it, despite some caveats which I'll discuss momentarily, when you do, Hit Parade listener, you might be surprised at how much chart talk is in the movie. You know who gets paid more than the writer of a song that hits number 94 on the Billboard Hot 100? The writer of a song that hits number one.
1: You're just a wind-up toy in a music box.
0: Who knew Malcolm X was such a music snob? Anyway, One Night in Miami is earning acclaim for dramatic exchanges like this one. When Oscar nominations were announced in Hollywood just last week, the film garnered several. Sadly, those nods were not in the best picture field, or for acclaimed actor-turned-director Regina King. Of the three nods the film did earn, and this is especially interesting for music fans, the man who plays Sam Cook is up for two of them.
1: Can you hear the bells ring out? Speak now.
0: Speak now. Can you hear the sing loud? Leslie Odom Jr., the prior Tony and Grammy winner for the Broadway smash Hamilton, is nominated for both Best Supporting Actor for his galvanic performance as Cook, the film's only acting nomination, by the way, and for Best Original Song. The latter nomination is for Speak Now, which Odom co-wrote with songwriter Sam Ashworth and sings over the film's closing titles. It is meant to evoke Sam Cooke indirectly, crossed with some of the folk music Cooke admired.
1: Brothers and sisters,
0: listen, listen what is somewhat ironic about all this attention for Odom's portrayal of Cook has to do with the film's third Oscar nomination. That's for its screenplay by playwright and screenwriter Kemp Powers, adapted from his stage play One Night in Miami. What's funny about this is the character Powers' story is hardest on is Sam Cook in a miami hotel room malcolm x played by kingsley ben adir hector's cook for everything from his social activism to his music.
1: The church songs that nurtured you. you, you you twisted them and you perverted them to feed a, a white crowd.
0: That is bullshit. Most of the artists I work with are gospel singers. Do you have any idea what I've given back to the church? How, how many times do I have to hear that? That has got to be the greatest fault of you so-called uh, successful Negroes. You'll do something detrimental to goes. your own people with the promise that, that after you get rich, then you gonna make it back up to them. Now, the film does depict a night that did, in fact, happen. February 25th, 1964, when prizefighter Cassius Clay, soon to become Muhammad Ali, won his historic bout with Sonny Liston to become heavyweight champion of the world, and then spent a quiet, low-key evening hanging at a Miami hotel with Cook, Malcolm X, and football great Jim Brown. But what actually happened in that hotel room is pure speculation. No one outside of the still-alive Jim Brown knows exactly what the four men talked about, what they argued over, or what music they listened to. In the film, Sam Cooke is presented as a kind of foil for Malcolm X, a successful black performer seeking white approbation from his recordings of songs that appealed to the larger pop audience at the expense of his gospel roots to, in one early scene in the film, Cook's flop performance at the largely white venue, the Copacabana.
1: Let's give a warm
0: Copacabana welcome for Sam Cook! It's great to be at the Copacabana! How's everybody feeling tonight? (laughs) Let's be clear. One Night in Miami is hardly the only film in this year's Oscar race that skews true events to suit a narrative from Trial of the Chicago 7 to Mank. But as my Slate colleague Jack Hamilton recently pointed out in an article about the film's portrayal of Sam Cooke, quote, Movies play fast and loose with historical accuracy all the time, but One Night in Miami so drastically distorts the facts of Cook's life and work that it actually sells short his artistry. Throughout this episode, we'll present small excerpts from One Night in Miami. I'll keep them fairly brief to avoid major spoilers if you haven't seen the film, though this is kind of a hard film to spoil. And we'll set the record straight on the greatness and social conscience of Sam Cooke. My goal is not to vilify Regina King's powerful film. It's about much more than Sam Cook. Odom's Oscar-nominated role is considered a supporting performance, And Kemp Power's script is ultimately about a community in the 60s rising up to declare, in vital new ways, that Black Lives Matter. Nonetheless, Sam Cooke is not only the focus of the film's acclaim, he is the fulcrum around which the story's central debate revolves. And hey, Any excuse to think about how Sam Cooke became a legend and hear his extraordinary voice is one we at Hit Parade are happy to indulge in. Oh,
1: there will be peace Peace in in the valley valley for
0: me one day. Even if he had never become a star in the secular world, Sam Cooke would be a legend in the gospel world. That's him singing Peace in the Valley with the Soul Stirrers, a Jubilee-style gospel troupe that had formed half a decade before Sam was even born.
1: There will be peace in the
0: Sam entered the world in Clarksdale, Mississippi, in 1931, the fifth of eight children of the Reverend Charles Cook and Annie Mae Cook. In 1933, when Sam was only two, Reverend Cook packed up his family and headed north, settling on Chicago's south side. There, the Reverend established himself in the religious community. Sam grew up in a world of church music, singing with his siblings, and by high school, he had formed a Jubilee Quartet of his own. But he was also a fan of black secular music by such pre-rock artists as The Ink Spots. If I didn't care More than words can say and a vocalist a dozen years older than Sam who'd even gone to his Chicago high school, Nat King Cole.
1: I love you for sentimental reasons
0: Both of these acts would later influence Sam's own vocal style, but in the gospel world Sam was raised in, there was no musical act bigger than the soul-stirrers. Oh, well, it's
1: by and by when the hallelujah,
0: By the time Sam met them, the stirrers were already nearly a quarter-century old, They had thrived through the Depression and World War II by touring nationwide, and by the 40s, they had helped pioneer a hard, close-harmony gospel style that would later influence doo-wop and soul. When the Stirrer's leader, R.H. Harris, decided to leave the group in 1950, they recruited 19-year-old Sam Cooke, whose surname, by the way, was still spelled C-O-O-K, like his father's.
1: Oh yes, tell me I Lord, I
0: By this time, the stirrers were signed to a label, Specialty Records, founded in Los Angeles by budding music impresario and black music aficionado Art Roop. The now former member, R.H. Harris, had been the closest thing to a star in The Soul Stirrers, but The Stirrers had never had a star like Sam Cooke. Lord there, I'll, leave
1: I'll leave my mother
0: Blessed with both a potent natural tenor voice and natural good looks, young women would come to church just to hear him sing, Cook was essentially the first teen idol of gospel music. His lead vocal on the Stirrer's 1951 single, Jesus Gave Me Water, which Cook biographer Peter Guralnik called, almost dancing and playful gave the group their biggest-selling and most-requested song to date.
1: Pray to swear.
0: The Stirrers had found a prodigy in Cook, who became both the de facto leader of the group in his early 20s and their most prodigious songwriter, His original song, Be With Me, Jesus, was structured as a counterpoint duet between Cook and fellow stirrer Paul Foster. It sounded like two generations forming a soul alliance.
1: By 1955,
0: The Soul Stirrers were so renowned that they co-headlined what is still, over 65 years later, considered the landmark show in gospel history, the Great Shrine Auditorium Concert. Thousands gathered in L.A. in July of 55 to see such stars as The Caravan's James Cleveland, a budding legend in gospel choir arranging. The Pilgrim Travelers, who would soon take on Sam Cooke's friend Lou Rawls as a vocalist, and the Soul Stirrers, for whom twenty four year old Sam Cooke was the main attraction. Ah! The Great Shrine Concert turned out to be rather pivotal for Sam. In the audience that night was Robert Bumps Blackwell, a producer for the Soul Stirrers label Specialty Records. Blackwell was starting to branch out from gospel. Later that year, he would produce Little Richard, one of Specialty's first non-gospel acts. And at the shrine, Bumps was taken with Sam Cooke's undeniable star quality. Blackwell would spend the next year and a half pursuing Cook to convince him to break from gospel and go pop. Sam didn't need much convincing. As good as it was being a star in gospel music, he could see it had a ceiling. Plus, the explosion of rock and roll on the charts in 1955 and 56 had brought new opportunities for black performers. In the spring of 56, the Platters scored the first number one of the rock era by a black vocal group with their remake of the song The Ink Spots made famous in the late 30s, My Prayer.
1: My prayer
0: according to biographer Peter Goralnik, Cook himself had taken notice of the phenomenal crossover success of Harry Belafonte, the so-called King of Calypso, whose 1956 LP Calypso spent some eight months at number one, purchased by white and black audiences in the millions. Stop, but I'm sad to I'm on my way be back for many a day. Moreover, the establishment of rhythm and blues on the charts in the first half of the 50s had laid bare its roots in gospel. R&B stars were pioneering bold new forms by shamelessly turning spiritual music secular. Some of the songs were bald faced remakes. In the summer of '54, while on tour, a 23 year old Ray Charles heard the southern tones, It Must Be Jesus, on the radio. Charles and the trumpeter in his band, Renald Richard, turned the same basic melody into I've Got a Woman, which Charles recorded in the fall of 54 and turned into an R&B number one smash.
1: She give me money When I'm in need Yeah, she's a kind of Friend indeed I got a woman
0: Compared with Ray Charles, Sam Cooke was an actual gospel star, with an innate understanding of how soulful gospel could transform into soul music. By the end of 1956, Cooke would try the exact same trick, only, unlike Brother Ray, Sam's experiment would not be under his own name.
1: But there's something you can do about it, and we hope you'll join us in DC on May 14th to explore the possible pathways out of the current situation. go to slate.com/ live for tickets. The Lord is my shepherd. He's my God.
0: Wonderful was a classic praise song. The wonderful one in the lyric was God. Written a decade earlier by Chicago gospel pioneers Virginia Davis and Theodore Fry, The Soul Stirrers had recorded Wonderful With Sam in early 1956. Toward the end of 56, in a solo studio session with Bumps Blackwell, Sam turned Wonderful into Lovable.
1: I know she's lovable.
0: It was a secular spin on the wonderful melody, but Cook was nervous about issuing a non-gospel pop single under his own name. So, Specialty issued the single in January 1957 under the artist name Dale Cook. But Lovable wasn't fooling
1: anyone.
0: After all, Sam Cook was now already a star with the most recognizable voice in gospel. How was he going to hide that voice under Dale Cook's name? Still, Even though it wasn't a hit—Billboard gave the single a lukewarm review, and it sold only modestly—the lovable experiment worked in a couple of ways. For one thing, it gave Sam a way to get over his trepidation and prepare for his departure from gospel. He knew the church community would be withering in their judgment. Indeed, throughout 1957, many privately tried to convince him not to make the secular switch. Sam was especially anxious about the reaction of his father, the Reverend Charles Cook. But to his credit, the Reverend told Sam that singing with the Soul Stirrers was just his job— quote, the Lord gave you a voice to sing to make people happy, he told Sam, according to Peter Garalnik's biography. And if you can make more money singing pop music than you can the church songs that you're singing, well, don't nobody get saved over singing, unquote. The other thing the Dale Cook experiment achieved was it gave specialty records president Art Roop the idea that maybe Sam Cook, who, by the way, added an E to the end of his name in 1957 as part of his transformation, could cut it as a pop star. But Roop had very specific ideas about what the new Sam Cook should sound like. Specialty was having success with the fierce, gritty, rock-and-roll sound of Little Richard. And Root gave specific instructions to producer Bumps Blackwell to give Sam a version of the Little Richard sound. But Cook was not interested in that raw sound. He thought he should sound more like this.
1: Summertime And the living is easy.
0: Summertime. The George Gershwin standard from Porgy and Bess was one of the most recognizable popular songs in the mainstream American canon. It was a savvy choice for a crossover record, and Cook's languid, soulful take on the ballad would wind up on his Greatest Hits album several years later. But Sam and Bumps did two takes of the song, and the version they intended to issue as a single was what really pissed off their label present.
1: It's summertime and the living is easy.
0: Cook's up-tempo, super-smooth, almost Rat Pack-style take on Summertime, complete with white backing vocalists, was not at all what Art Roop wanted from his next Little Richard. It led to a rupture and a blowout fight between Sam Cook, Bumps Blackwell, and Roop, and in the end, Art Roop released Sam Cook from his contract with Specialty. So Sam and Bumps took their recordings and signed with the smaller label Keen Records, which agreed to put out the Uptempo Summertime single. But what Keen was also um, keen on was a song Sam Cooke wrote by himself that he and they thought was going to be the single's B-side.
1: Darling, you send me
0: it was the darndest thing. When Keen issued Sam Cooke's debut single, radio DJs all flipped it over and treated You Send Me as the A-side. Radio audiences adored it, too, and requested it in droves. And here was why. However easygoing it sounded, You Send Me was basically unprecedented. Bruce Eater of All Music writes, quote, Although it seems like a tame record today, You Send Me was a pioneering soul record in its time, melding elements of R&B, gospel, and pop into a sound that was new and still coalescing at the time.
1: Myself wanting to marry you and take you home. You
0: By the Standards of the Old School Music Business, You Send Me, now regarded as Sam Cooke's official single with Summertime on the flip, was a remarkably fast hit. In 1957, Billboard magazine still charted bestsellers in stores separately from Most Played by Jockeys, as radio DJs were called. The Hot 100 would not launch until 1958. And on both charts, You Send Me blew up. It made its best seller's debut on the chart dated October 27th, 1957, all the way up at number six. By December 2nd, it was Billboard's top seller. On the radio side, Cook took two weeks to crack the top 10 on the jockeys chart, but then only four more weeks to reach number one. By early December, it was also number one on Billboard's R&B charts. This was an exceptional chart debut. A couple of weeks before Christmas 1957, Sam Cook former gospel superstar turned pop newcomer, had the top selling and most played song in America on his very first try.
1: Send me honest <laughs>
0: By the time the song hit number one, Sam had also been on America's most popular TV variety program, The Ed Sullivan Show, twice. The first time in early November, Sullivan brought Cook on as his final guest of the night, but the show was running long. Sam got through not even two lines of the song before CBS cut him off.
1: Darling, you-
0: Americans were so mad to see their new favorite song truncated, they flooded CBS with calls. And Sullivan had Sam Cooke back on December 1st.
1: I know you send me.
0: Sullivan even let Cooke perform two songs the second time, and he apologized live on air. I did wrong one night here on our stage by young Sam Cooke from the coast. And I got I never received so much mail in my life, Sam. But the applause and the audience ran overboard that night. I never did get him on, but he has been on the first part of the show, and here he is singing his newest hit record. Sam Taket. I love
1: you, I love 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 you.
0: Cook's version of Nat King Cole's I Love You for Sentimental Reasons was a top-20 hit on both the pop and R&B charts in early 1958. And on the R&B side, Sam scored an instant number-one follow-up to You Send Me, the similarly romantic and soulful I'll Come Running Back to You.
1: Just call my name, I know, I know I'm not ashamed I'll come running back to you. Sam
0: so Cooke had turned into a pop fixture and TV personality remarkably quickly. By 1958, he was serving as a March of Dimes spokesman and singing his ring a ding dinging Mary Mary Lou on the TV variety hour, The Arthur Murray Party. Woo! Cook's acceptance by mainstream audiences was seemingly so swift that by March of 58, he would be invited to perform at New York's famed Copacabana nightclub, a longtime dream of Sam's. Infamously, he did not do well, as is depicted, again, in the 2020 film One Night in Miami. How's everybody feeling tonight? This is a major plot point in the film. Not only is the 1958 Copacabana performance recreated in the movie, right down to the stand-up comedian Myron Cohen, who preceded Cook and reportedly set him up for failure with the largely white audience, Cook's desire to get another shot at the Copa is discussed and debated among the foursome of friends at the hotel.
1: (laughs) It's not that bad. Come on. All right, fine, maybe it was that uh, bad. You, you don't shuck and jive enough for those old tastes.
0: I may not dance around a stage like Jackie or James Brown, but that's not what I'm selling. I'm selling my voice, my message.
1: A message? Hmm. Problem is the problem isn't the Copa, You have to sell that message to a bunch of white folks.
0: That don't matter. They got souls, don't they? If I win them over playing our music, I'm, I'm knocking down doors for everybody. It's not going to always be the pop charts over here, black music charts over there. One day, it's going to be one chart. Mm, One music for all people. And so here we have our first corrective to the film. In real life, the famed One Night in Miami happened in late February 1964. Cook's failure at the Copa had happened six years earlier. It was not a fresh wound. However... If there's one thing screenwriter Kemp Powers gets right here, it's that, as late as 64, the real Sam Cooke was still seething about his COPA experience in 58. Here is a clip from The Mike Douglas Show, on which Cooke was a guest in, coincidentally, February 1964 asked to summarize for douglas's audience the highlights of his career sam can't help recalling his first major failure
1: one of the copa bombed you bombed (laughs) (laughs) did you really that's right i I, I bombed the the copa's a funny (laughs) room the one in new york city you're talking about which that's right for some reason it happens to be the prestige date of all time if you make it at the copa that's it why do you think think you bombed why do i know why i bombed
0: because i wasn't ready back in 1958, the Copa seemed to check Sam Cooke's momentum. For the rest of 58 and 59, he kept scoring hits, but none approached the massive success of his debut smash, You Send Me. It also seemed that Sam had been relegated to the black audience, as in his gospel days. Three consecutive singles went top 10 R&B, but missed the pop top 20. You were made for me.
1: As sure as there are stars above, I know, I know, you were made for me. You were made for me.
0: Win your love for me. Whoa, whoa, whoa
1: little girl, how happy I would be if some miracle.
0: Amazingly, one of his best-known singles from this period, "The Party Starter," everybody loves to cha-cha-cha. It reached number two on the R&B chart, but a lowly number 31 on the Hot
1: 100.
0: By the time of his summer 1959 single, only 16. Another classic from this late 50s period,
1: she was all a 16, all a 16, with eyes that would glow But
0: Sam was beginning to think it was time to move on from Keen Records. The small label seemed overmatched to promote a rising artist of his stature. What's more, in 1958, Sam had married his longtime sweetheart, Barbara Campbell, and they were soon expecting their second child. Sam wasn't making enough on Keen Records to raise a family. Plus, by 1958 and 59, the chart competition had gotten fiercer. Jackie Wilson had already scored his first R&B and pop hit, Lonely Teardrops. Ray Charles, after a decade of consistent R&B success, was now crossing to the pop charts with his first Hot 100 Top 10 hit, What Did I Say?
1: See the girl with the red dress she can do the best.
0: Detroit a startup label named Motown founded by a self-styled mogul named Barry Gordy was scoring its first ever chart hit in late 59 with a Barrett strong song called money
1: the best things in life are free, but you can get-
0: Speaking of wanting money, one last detail Sam wanted to get straight was owning more of his material. So, when he finally scored a major label deal with RCA Records in the closing weeks of 1959, he not only bought back his copyrights from Keen Records, he also set up his own publishing company, Cags Music, and began making plans to start a label of his own. In the meantime, in early 1960, RCA, which at the time was the biggest label in music, thanks to having Elvis Presley on their roster, issued their first single with Sam Cooke. Called Teenage Sonata, it did not set the world on fire, peaking on the Hot 100 at number
1: 50. And with my teenage sonata comes a prayer that we we'll never part.
0: The final irony as Sam Cooke was amicably parting from Keen Records and closing out his business with the label was that he had recorded one last single for Keen, and this song released just after the RCA single, Teenage Sonata, was not only a much bigger hit on Keen, it remains one of Sam Cooke's most beloved and best-remembered hits of all.
1: Don't know much about Don't know much Don't know In June much about of
0: 1960, What a Wonderful World, reach number 12 on the Hot 100 and number 2 on the R&B chart. As of March 2021, it is Sam Cooke's all-time most played song on Spotify. It's also my dad's all-time favorite pop song. Hi, Dad. When we come back, Sam Cooke not only makes a pop chart comeback, He becomes a label boss and music mogul. And no matter what the movie says, Cook was recording socially conscious hits well before 1964. Non-Slate Plus listeners will hear the rest of this episode in two weeks. For now, I hope you've been enjoying this episode of Hit Parade. Our show was written, edited, and narrated by Chris Malanfi. That's me. My producer is Asha Saluja. June Thomas is the senior managing producer and Gabriel Roth, the editorial director of Slate Podcasts. Check out their roster of shows at slate.com podcasts. You can subscribe to Hit Parade wherever you get your podcasts, in addition to finding it in the Slate Culture feed. If you're subscribing on Apple Podcasts, please rate and review us while you're there. It helps other listeners find the show. Thanks for listening, and I look forward to leading the hit parade back your way. We'll see you for part two in a couple of weeks. Until then, keep on marching on the one. I'm Chris Malanfi.